Welcome to the 192nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how regulation impacts the average American family, how the empire is uh, slowly falling around Mr. McConnell, the previous Speaker of the House, and a interesting one talking about the re-election of two particular areas in Alaska and Washington and their effect on the overall makeup of the house. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to be feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So how much does the federal government cost you per year? If you're going to put it in a spreadsheet, if you're going to do the math, how much per year are you spending on taxes or in fees, on late fees, things that you didn't necessarily pay off, or if you know there's a very particular regulation or sort of permit that affects you or your business that you have to get every single year, how much does it cost you? And, you know, some things aren't necessarily quantifiable, but if you want to do the math and throw it down there, I'd love to hear what you have to say, because it really connects with this first article that we have from The Daily Signal. Lynn reads, Here's how much regulations cost the average American family and how Biden is making it worse. So if you're a person who regularly reads the Daily Signal, you know that they have a nice little vendetta against our current president, as a lot of different people on the right side of the aisle do. But I want you to remove that one. We'll get to that at the end. The first thing we're going to focus on is the actual cost that these regulations bring on to the average American. At the end of the day, does any average American, any American family want to be paying more or do they want to have to deal with inflated prices? I would argue, no, they don't. But that's just my opinion on the matter. Uh, maybe you do like some of the benefits that come from these different regulations and you're willing to put up with it. But just in a amount of money, if you actually, you know, in a conceptual sense, oh yeah, this regulation, yeah, if it costs us a few extra bucks here or there, but actually having quantifiable data about how much you're paying as a household is probably going to resonate a little bit more with you. So let's go to our first quote. Quote, Americans expect to pay federal taxes, but the federal government also picks their pockets in more hidden ways. And President Joe Biden is making the problem worse in pursuing his political agenda, according to the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So, yes, it sounds like a nonprofit. Yes, it sounds like they have a, a very specific goal, you know, Competitive Enterprise Institute. But that doesn't mean that their data is wrong. It's just something you need to think about. Maybe you want to go back to the source and read up on it a little bit more. But their report says, quote, American households pay at least $14,000 a year in hidden regular, regulatory costs. And this is coming from Wayne Cruz, the Fred L. Smith Fellow in the regulatory studies at the Institute. It says a new video provided exclusively to the Daily Signal. Instead of finding ways to cut those costs for Americans, President Biden's whole of government policy framework prioritizes political causes like climate change and equity in the regulatory process, end quote. And you may be thinking, okay, wait, hold on. Why why are those last ones interesting? And you can look specifically at climate change for very obvious examples, which is if there is going to be a solution to climate change and it is proposed by the government, it's going to mean more restrictions on certain types of products. Uh, think California with its ban or the refusal to allow car companies to sell gas cars after 
2030. That directly puts a cost on the consumer because now there is a mandated type of car, meaning that these electric cars can actually go for a little bit higher prices because the gas alternatives aren't necessarily allowed to be sold in California. Or if you think about policies such as making it so that every single coal plant has to have a certain type of, uh, let's put it as a CO2 reduction unit in its coal stack. It has to actually install some of these systems. It has to draw out some of that extra coal smoke and soot so it doesn't go into the atmosphere, which, you know, if you're an environmental person, that sounds amazing. But guess what? Now that energy, that energy that is being produced by the coal is actually going to be maybe two or three cents more expensive per hour because they had to buy this expensive machine. They had to install the expensive machine. They had to do it on all their smokestacks and they have to keep it up to date. They have to make sure that it's still compliant with these regulations. They have to clean it out to make sure that it's working efficiently so they don't actually lose money on it, or at least they don't have to cost on even more costs because it's not actually cleaning the air properly. Therefore, they're getting fines onto the consumer. So you can see how all these different regulatory processes build up in the environmental sector. But what about uh, equity? So when they say equity regulations, what they're saying is they're doing different counter regulations to change the effects of how certain previous regulations went into effect in the economy. So if you think about the different housing uh, grants and programs that were allowed to people after World War II and during the 50s and 60s and how they were preferentially given to certain minority, uh, sorry, majority groups, the white population and minority groups were left out. Now they have counterbalancing policies in order to uplift some of those people in different communities that were, you know, affected terribly in the past administrations. We'll think about it this way. It's the exact same thing that I mentioned with the gas cars. They are if they are, well, how should I put it nicely? Uh, they're tipping the scales. They're mandating that one person gets a certain type of treatment and they're going to be treated you know, better nowadays, fair, making up for their old uh, problems that have affected their community. Sure, you can definitely say that. And if you feel that in your heart, sorry, I, I just had to fix the mic issue. I don't know what was going on there, but uh, something, something weird is you know, going on. I hope I sound a little bit better now. But the point I was trying to make is that when you actually go into these closed market systems and you incentivize a certain type of buyer to buy certain houses, you're disincentivizing other people to buy the same houses. And therefore, those houses may not have the same appeal. There won't necessarily be as much competition. Therefore, the housing prices may actually stay higher in that neighborhood. So there's a lot that could be done here. There are different policies that could be attempted, but these sort of equity policies actually put the thumb on the scale and they alter the market dynamics and not necessarily to the benefit of the average consumer. So you can see what the author is trying to get at here. But what's the second quote? So there's kind of a, a guesstimate area where he goes in and tries to break down uh, some of the larger numbers, not just the per-family uh, information. Quote, while the federal law requires an annual estimate of cost of regulation, the federal government has not met that requirement since 2002. So guess what? They haven't been going through and doing a regulation-by-regulation regulation cost estimate since 2002. So we can just add new regulations, and we don't have to understand what the consequences are. We don't have to see what the tax burden is going to be. We don't have to have a actually broken down spreadsheet that tells us exactly how it affects things and why it affects it. So it makes it easier for the government to not be accountable. 
Sorry, just wanted to point that out. Quote, while the Office of Management and Budget has estimated some costs and benefits of major rules, the report finds some analysis incomplete because they do not encompass all rulemaking of each year. Crew's report uses a baseline of roughly $1.9 trillion for the cost of the federal regulation, encompassing compliance costs, economic losses, and losses in gross domestic products, social costs, and other costs. The analysts took recent government reports into account to reach the $1.939 trillion figure. Just to put that into perspective, that is approximately one thirty-third. I know, actually, divided by two. It's about, uh, what, one-fifteenth, one-fifteenth, one-sixteenth of the current national debt per year. Now, obviously, some taxes go into that, and we'll talk about that here in a second, but it's not nearly enough. Uh, quote, although he acknowledges that this represents an estimate based on non-scientific, disclaimer-laden amalgam of GDP losses and compliance costs derived from available official data and other accessible sources, the $1.9 trillion represents more than three-fifths of the level of corporate pre-tax profit in 2022, which was $3.138 trillion. And the reason they're saying here that, okay, the pre-tax profit for all these companies that possibly are subject to these regulations is $3.138 trillion. That means that if they were to actually pay down all the costs of the regulations, not that they do, but if they were directly to pay all of these costs back to the government at some sort of special tax, then they would be losing half of their profit before tax. Which is, uh, you know, maybe you could say, hey, we need to cut down the big corporations. Sure, they could be a little bit leaner, but at the end of the day, that's a lot of jobs that would have to be cut. That was a, That would be a lot of changes in corporate culture that may actually benefit or, well, they wouldn't benefit, sorry, they would cost the consumer because guess what? Now, well, we used to have three people who were able to do this one task, and now we have to hire this really specialized person. And even though he can get it done as one and we were cutting some of the costs, you know, we actually have to pay him a little bit more because he's such a specialist, so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a tricky business trying to regulate these companies and then trying to say, oh, yeah, we're going to throw all of these extra regulations that you have to comply with, therefore upping the cost on the consumer, and then also all these other little tiny costs that, you know, like social costs, not just compliance costs, that, that's also going to have to be accounted for. So you can see here how the costs just add up and add up, and people probably wouldn't be happy about it if they knew the whole number. But what's even more interesting here is, quote, a far larger number than the estimated corporate tax revenues of $382 billion. So let's do some quick math there. Uh, $382 billion is roughly a third of a trillion. And we're basically at $2 trillion. So what? That is three... F- yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me do that again. That's actually six times the cost, the compliance costs, all these extra costs that we don't necessarily see on the balance sheet, but we can, you know, ascertain through prices and could be implicated as actually costing the average family, it's actually six times greater than the amount of tax revenue that they get from the corporations that they are regulating. It's peculiar to me that we 
don't actually have this breakdown anymore that we used to do all the way up until 2002 because it would give us a nice understanding of, okay, hey, this regulation, it costs this much. How much tax revenue are we getting from that industry? Okay, we have an acceptable ratio of, well, actually, this is going to be too expensive. You know, if you have a ratio of one to two, therefore, the tax revenue we get is one and the expenses in caused by the regulation or the rule is two, then that's fine. But if we have a one to 10 ratio where the tax revenue doesn't even come close, it's 10 times smaller than the cost of regulation and rules caused on the company, maybe we need to reevaluate that one. Maybe we need to say, hey, we actually need to cut this rule. We need to make a more refined one. The technology has changed, so we actually need to shed some of these old ones that are still costing companies money when they could be using new technology or they could be using a new process. There's lots of different options here. And this is why Daily Signal doesn't really go after Trump as much, because Trump, for every one regulation that he put on the books, he tried to cut two regulations. I believe that was his math equation. Biden has not done that. He's put almost all of the regulations that he saw fit, or at least adaptations of them during the Obama administration, back on the books. Most of the ones that Trump cut, he put back on the books. So you can see why the author led with, and how Joe Biden is making it worse. And it's not just Joe Biden. It's the mentality of the people on the Democratic side of the aisle and certain people in the Republican Party who see the executive as the all-powerful, the one that can actually sign executive actions to get their will done rather than having to legislate things and go through Congress and the Senate and have a proper process where the people actually get a say in the matter or a more direct say because they can elect these House members every two years, these senators every six years, and you know, with the presidency, it's only every four years, and also they don't have to be as directly liable to the people because guess what? All of these politicians who are there on the House, they have to take those calls every single day. They're not dealing with all different national security issues as often. They have staffers that take calls from their people every single day. They can get recall elections in a lot of different jurisdictions. They see the small dollars uh, drain and really stop coming in when they, people don't approve of their policies. So they have a lot more control mechanisms or at least direct response mechanisms rather than President Biden just hearing what the media wants him to hear or you know some outrage on Twitter. So let's just take a step back. You know, Let's cut some regulations. Let's reevaluate some other ones. I think we can move forward in a healthy way. We can have okay regulations that actually protect the safety of the citizens while not increasing the tax burden, or sorry, just the burden economically on people too much. But it's, the problem is it's bloated. Once you start one regulation and rule, you're like, well, well, why didn't I think of this next one? And then you have A, B, and C that comes along with D, E, and F, and it just it keeps on going. We need to seriously sit down and think about some of these rules that have been on the books for too long that are costing people and reevaluate some of the ones that just are basically pointless, that companies don't really fall in line with anyway. They do the math. They're like, okay, what's the compliance cost? What's it actually going to cost us in order to implement it? No, we're not going to implement it. And, you know, we're going to get rid of, we'll just pay the compliance cost. Well, if nobody in the industry is following that regulation and you're still sending out people and paying them to go check if they're following it, then get rid of that regulation. Because obviously if they're going by just fine and not having to, you know, continually get banned, but rather they're just paying a compliance fee and they're getting by and the social outrage is not there to shut them down and not buy their product anymore, then obviously that rule regulation is absolutely crazy. And I'm not saying that I know there are 100% ones on the book like that. I'm just 
90% certain there are a whole bunch of them on the books that we could reevaluate in that way. But that's enough on that one. That's enough on the Biden dreariness. Let's jump to another national figure who has recently been thrown out of their office, which is Mr. Kevin McCarthy. This one comes from The Nation, Kevin McCarthy's Empire of Lies. And when I first read this one, I was like, really? Did he, did he really, really say that? And then I also caught myself like, oh, yeah, he's right. Oh, wait, no, he's definitely, definitely wrong. And then I tried to justify. I was like, maybe he meant this, maybe he meant that. Well, at the end of the day, it's just kind of funny. And I wanted to bring this one. It's a little bit of levity. Like, really? Okay, these are the people that we choose to put in power, the people that we choose to be there representing us on the Hill in the greatest nation on the planet. I know that's arguable, but when it comes to freedoms, protecting your encroachment on your life by government, America is probably number one all the way. And I think some of those are some of the more important values. But that's besides the point. It's just, let me just read it, okay? Uh, quote, Kevin McCarthy used his brief tenure as Speaker of the House of Representatives to wage a culture war against what he has declared as woke indoctrination in our schools, borrowing a page from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other right-wing firebrands. The Republican Speaker went out of his way to attack critical race theory and the honest teaching of American history. McCarthy is no longer second in the presidential line of succession, but the former speaker is still trying to replace facts with fantasy. On Sunday, McCarthy posted a video of himself explaining that in every single war that America has fought, we have never asked for land afterward, except for enough to bury the Americans who gave the ultimate sacrifice for freedom. Well, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily uh, pan out exactly how he's thinking. Now, some of the examples they bring up here is, oh, well, we actually took land during the course of the war, which is different than like, going into a peace treaty and saying, hey, we want this specific land, like this is American land. But I think the author does bring up a few different points where it's like, okay, well, there's kind of a gray area here, and he's kind of living in the middle. And when you're talking about teaching U.S. history and whether or not I agree with getting some of the CRT stuff out of there, I've said my opinions on that before. But whether or not you agree on that, it is funny. We're like, oh, yes, we need to have uh, pure American history taught. And then you don't necessarily know all the facts or at least not willing to go into the gray area that exists in some of these situations and express all of what happened. You know, it is kind of ironic. It's kind of funny. Uh, quote, so the facts. The United States, which took its current form via a western westward expansion that displaced Native Americans from coast to coast, uh, has a very long record of making post-war land claims. The Revolutionary War was settled in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris, in which, according to the U.S. Department of State, the United States succeeded in succeeded in obtaining Newfoundland fishing rights and with the western border that extended to the Mississippi River with rights of navigation. In the ensuing centuries, we see the U.S. take control of Puerto Rico, Guam, and for a time, the Philippines. But the war-related land claim that McCarthy should be most familiar with is closer to home. The House District he represents in California a state that was a part of Mexico until the U.S. invaded and took it, which is, there's a difference there, invaded and took it versus invaded and had a war and then claimed, you know, pot after the war was like, okay, hey, the war's over, can we have California? No, no, they took over California during the war, so it is a little bit different, and the author's kind of stretching the truth here, but still, 
point still stands, uh, sorry, in the U.S.-Mexico War of the mid-1840s, which was launched, um, launched amid a barrage of lies from President James K. Polk, ultimately seized a vast stretch of northern Mexico in an imperialist land grab. Yes, that, that that's true. It's an imperialist land grab. That doesn't mean that, hey, we were asking for land afterwards. If I'm going to give McCarthy his time of day, if I'm going to be generous, I'm going to say, no, no, he was, what he was actually saying was when we participated in these grand wars, these large-scale wars with different allies, we never afterwards said, okay, hey, we just help you defeat the Nazis. Give us a, a chunk of Germany. Now, we did get part of Berlin, but it was under joint control technically, and one sector was under supervision, and then over time it actually came together under one Berlin, which was... West Berlin. So yeah, there's there's also a little bit of uh, interesting middle ground there as well. But the author likes to pull at the heartstrings a little bit, and they pull out a, a quote or at least a little bit of reckoning uh, from Thoreau. And I don't want to necessarily read the Thoreau quote and go through it that way, but I do want to read the following or the second to last paragraph, the one following where they talk about the Thoreau quote, which is uh, an interesting way to sum all of this up. Quote: McCarthy may not have read Thoreau quite as closely as did Muhammad Gandhi or the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., but he might at least have recognized that the Golden State's Kern County, which he has represented for decades in the state legislature and the U.S. Congress, President Polk's war of conquest made vast swaths of land that had been on the northern cusp of Mexico, including Ranchos Los Almiros y Agua Caliente, Rancho El Terno, and Rancho Castas, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that last one, a part of the new American state of California. But of course, he didn't, and has inspired a flurry of offers from American historians who are prepared to give him a refresher course, including Columbia University professor Carl Jacoby, who said Monday, wanted to thank ex-Speaker McCarthy for reassuring me that Americans need my forthcoming book on the U.S.-Mexico War. And honestly, I think I'm going to pick up that book. Uh, not that I necessarily know the guy whatsoever. I haven't read any of his other stuff. But, I, you know, history is fascinating, and the U.S.-Mexico War is something I remember learning about with Polk as president. I remember him being a little bit greedy to grab the land, but I, I'm really I'm really curious to read this one, and I, I kind of want to educate myself. So I'm not going to give him the most obvious shout out. I don't name the know the name of the book yet, but if you see it on shelves and you take a little glance at it and you like what you're seeing, maybe maybe give it a read just so we can all be up to date on our uh, American, you know, US Mexico war knowledge if anything like this ever comes up again. Because when you first hear his claims, you're like, "Oh, okay. Like what what's what's he saying here? Maybe there's something." And then when you think about it for a second, you're like, "Wait, hold on. Don't didn't we have colonies that we took from Spain?" So, you know, it, it's obviously a <laughs> not as straightforward. And thank you for the authors for calling it out. It kind of just made me giggle, and it's something really, really cute. So I probably should have put that one at the end, but I found that more interesting. And this last article, it's not going to appeal to everybody, but it is still an important one. So stick around if you're still here. This one comes from a newspaper out of uh, Washington called the Ascadia, and I don't know what the last part is. I think it's report. But uh, I wrote it down a little bit funny, and my handwriting is not necessarily the best. But the headline reads, After printing up WAO3 in Alaska in 2022, PNW has Democrats 
on the defensive. So, yes, I know that probably didn't translate. It's a small district in Washington state and a district in Alaska that the Democrats won that, you know, it was a really tight battle. And at the end of the day, they're going to have to keep on fighting for 2024. And we may see these seats flip back. We may not. But if they can stay Democrat, then the Democrats may be able to keep that thin margin uh, just as thin as it is, rather than giving a larger one to the Republicans so they can get a few different bills passed without needing any support from the Democrats. Honestly, I kind of like the fact that we have thin margins right now. Don't get too much done. Uh, if you can get things taken away, sure, great. But if you can't come together and decide to get things passed, uh, I don't want too much change. I would try to limit the amount of change that we have, the new regulations and rules and laws that go on the books, these different agencies that they have to you know create the guidelines for because the executive order says hey create the agency and then uh, congress goes through and says okay these are going to actually be this is actually going to be part of your purview officially this is going to be the rule process stuff like that so you know if we can slow all that down you're not going to catch me sad so first let's talk about perez quote the depleted ranks of congress's once abundant blue dog democrat caucuses received an unexpected replenishment in these parts last year with the election of Maria Perez in Washington three and Maria Peliota in Alaska. Each did the Republic a service. Perez defeated extremist MAGA Republican Joe Kent, an extremist who proposed putting presidential pandemic advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci on trial for murder, and Peliota halted the political revival of the 20. 20- uh, 2008 Republican Vice President nominee, ex-Governor Sarah Palin, becoming the first indigenous, Ala- indigenous Alaskan native to serve in Congress. The Republicans have already targeted both of these as low-hanging fruit in 2024. Alaska has not voted Democrat for president since Lyndon B. Johnson carried the 49th state in 1964, and Donald Trump has twice carried the 3rd Congressional District in southwest Washington. The rural Washington area has become very Republican. The fates of MGP, Ms. Perez, and Peleota have made nationwide implications. So, like I said, these are kind of bellwethers. They're going to see where the rest of the trend goes. Uh, Alaska doesn't normally go, you know, for the Democratic candidate. So if they can keep this Democratic uh, senator, sorry, House member in their seat and still, you know, have Trump in there, that could be a big deal. It shows a little bit of splitting of the sentiment within Alaska. Maybe it really does come down to an incumbent effect, but maybe not. Maybe it really swings heavily Republican. That'll be interesting. And the fact that this one district in Washington has been swinging to the right and now it's also swinging back to the Democrat, it speaks to maybe there's a message that these kind of Democrats that were talking to the more you know rural voter, they were talking to the more working class, as they put it here at the beginning, the blue dog Democrats, the people that could be persuaded to vote Republican, especially with their new populist messaging. Maybe this is a path forward for some other Democrats. So the reason I want to bring this one up, you can go read the really in-depth article yourself and you can get a better understanding of how all these battles went down and what it's going to look like in 2024, but it's something you should definitely keep your eye on. So remember, that is Washington 3, 
and Miss Mary Paliota in Alaska. And remember, in Alaska, they have ranked choice voting. So it's not necessarily just down to Republican, Democrat. There could be an independent on there. There could be two Democrats. There could be two Republicans. And things get a little bit more mixy there. So that's something you have to keep in mind when looking at Alaska for the future. So let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Parade Pets. I know I've been grabbing a lot from them really recently. And the headline reads, Grumpy Cat Totally Changes After the Incoming New Kitten is Brought into the Family. So, I mean, hey, I I know how it is to have a new animal. Uh, We had a dog for a long time, and then there was a stray cat, or not a stray cat, a cat that was a neighbor's cat, and then they left, and he kind of just stuck around. We started feeding him. So, you know, there's a few different dynamics that happen when you have new animals present, and you kind of have to see how things are going to acclimate. Well, I'll, I'll tell you now. This cat was not necessarily the biggest fan of anybody new, but even old cats can learn new trick. Quote, here, thanks to at TezMD, we meet one family who noticed that their grumpy cat Oliver could use a pick-me-up. So they decided to introduce a new member of the furry family. Cue the entrance of Turbo, an adorable kitten with enough energy to brighten anyone's day. But I'll tell you now that uh, this was not something that was done immediately. It was a little bit of a slow introduction, but eventually it came around. Quote, the video shows us the magical moments as Oliver's grumpiness takes a backseat to the playful antics and cuddle sessions with Turbo. It's a touching reminder of the positive impact a new feline friend can have on the dynamics of a household. And, you know, I think it is 100% true. At the end of the day, if you got to mix things up, bring in a new animal, maybe it brings a little bit of life back to your old animal. Yeah, that's inspiring, and we love to see it. Even the old ones can get along with the youngins every once in a while, even if they're yelling, get off my cat litter box. Sorry, I was trying to say get off my lawn. But that's, that's enough for me. So if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post something at the Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, a little bit less formal, less quotes, just kind of off the top of my head or something that I'm reading. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.